Welcome to Alchemy's podcast, Ideas That Matter, where we meet with people making a difference in education. Julia is wrapping up this season with Jamie Karras, who we know from episode one as the CEO of Catalyst Education. Jamie discusses updates to Labflow for newly remote classes this fall. Hi, this is Julia Winter with another Ideas That Matter podcast. And today we're talking to Jamie Karras who is a serial founder in educational technology. After founding and building Sapling Learning, which many of us have used, he started Catalyst EDU, which signature product, is that what I would call it? Our only product right now. Right now is, but there there will be more, is LabFlow, which is focused on laboratory learning in college classes, especially the big college classes. And I will let him discuss that, but I think it's really, interesting at this point during this COVID pandemic to think about labs and the importance of labs and what we can do to make labs flow easier in this new environment for teaching in 2020. So Jamie, good to have you back. Tell us a little bit about where you are with lab flow. Well, it's interesting. You used a sentence just a few seconds ago about how to make labs flow easier. And that's where we actually got the name for lab flow is we talked to a lot of faculty and they just said, there are so many things that I have to worry about as I'm coordinating these lab courses. And I just wish that they would flow a lot easier. And so we based our software and the entire design of lab flow around empathy for faculty who teach lab courses. And, you know, three out of the four founders of of Catalyst Education are chemical educators who taught lab courses, including myself. And we just were very aware of the challenges it takes to deliver lab courses at scale and handle the, you know, the different myriad uh, concerns and facets of this course. Uh, It's much harder than a lecture course, in my opinion, because there are so many things to worry about, whether it's you know preparation for each week's experiment, if you have a bunch of TAs that are grading, how to get them to grade consistently and manage them and coach them. And then, of course, you know the student learning experience, both as they're in the lab doing the work, but also as they're turning in uh, their lab reports. And one of the hard things about teaching lab courses is that there's a, especially for large institutions, there's a pretty big disconnect between the lab coordinators themselves and the students because you have these TAs that are kind of the intermediaries that are in the class with the students and grading all of their student work. And so it's a more, you're kind of more distant than you normally would be in a lecture class from uh, your students. And so we built a platform that both brings you closer to the students, closer to their work, closer to the work of your graduate students and their grading, the grading work, as well as really makes the learning experience much better for students. That's awesome. And you know, you did it because you believe in hands-on learning, as do I. Experiential learning is is part of learning chemistry and physics and other STEM courses. What happened in April, March? What did you do? You know, there's the dichotomy of you believe in lab courses, but you want to support the instructors. Tell me a little bit about what you did. Yeah, I mean, necessity is the motherhood of invention. And LabFlow was designed to wrap digital curriculum around the traditional in-lab wet bench experience that we're all trying to give students. And, and I think it's very important. But starting in April, uh, you know, when the COVID pandemic, you know, started and schools started closing down, we had a number of uh, institutions who were using our software and they said, you know, help us, you know, what, what can we do? And we basically brought together two initiatives. One was our, our platform 
and all of the pre-lab preparation work that we did. And we provide a lot of content to get students prepared for lab, but a lot of that content is video content showing how to do a particular technique or how to use a piece of equipment in the lab. And so that became very valuable to replace the in-lab uh, learning experiences. If the students couldn't do it directly with their hands, at least they could see it being done properly. And so uh, we looked at that and, and we also brought together a, a separate initiative that we had had, which was we were building uh, open education resource lab manual content. And this was just kind of something that we were doing almost just because it's a part of our mission to lower the cost of education for students. Uh, we were putting together a bunch of labs, uh, lab uh, experiments, lab manual-like content that would be published with OpenStax to deliver free educational materials to the world. And those became very important. And so we built some features into our software that allowed, it was more for like the sick student or student who had some sort of event, um, the ability to deliver provisional data uh, to students. And so we told our existing users, actually, you don't have to do a whole lot of anything. All you have to do is, you know, we'll, we'll configure your course to deliver provisional data. And then your students will be able to complete their lab reports as they normally would by being given a set of data rather than collecting it themselves. And so as we progressed from the spring, uh, we also had a number of people who weren't using our software that were desperate for solutions. So we got together and built out courses that we could deliver for the last four weeks of spring and offered those courses for free to the world. And, Good for you. And a lot of people took us up on it. You know, it wasn't a perfect solution for everyone. Some people had covered labs that we already did, but given the circumstances said, you know what, it wouldn't hurt them to have a, a different look at this type of uh, experiment. So we helped uh, well over 80 institutions um, get through the term. And then of course, all of those had needed a solution for summer and they started using uh, us over the course of the summer. You're not a big fan of simulations though. I'm not a huge fan of simulations. I, I think that, you know, our approach has been pragmatic and it's been pragmatic for a couple of reasons. Number one, I've done a lot of educational technologies development and I've done a lot of simulations and, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit in a second about some of the challenges there, but we also were very time constrained and faculty just wanted to kind of get through the term and utilize things that they were comfortable with. And if there's one thing that I've done, been fairly successful in this market is not ask faculty to change too much of what they're doing and get them to uh, utilize things that are pretty familiar to them, but maybe encourage them to deliver some better digital experiences to supplement what they're doing in the class. And so we took that approach with provisional data. Over the summer, we added randomization to our provisional data because cheating was just such a huge problem that people were talking about, especially in the online scenario. You'd have a number, an algorithm in the back end, and there would be different numbers. Right. So every student's being given a different data set that they write a lab report with and do all their calculations on. And then as we move to the fall, we're doing what we're calling visual data, which is giving students some of the same data collection experiences that they might have in lab. So anything where they have to estimate a data point, like a volumetric measurement, where they have to kind of look at the meniscus and read from the bottom of it and estimate between the lines to get one more digit in their reading and to record that, that precision properly, uh, or maybe a melting point where they have to kind of look at, you know, where the quick where they're gonna mark the temperature, where the crystals start melting or complete melting. And so those are things that they're using some observational data collection skills. And so now for the fall, we're adding that so that students get randomized images as well as randomized numbers 
for their data. So it mimics some of the in-lab experiences. Virtual labs and you know virtual desktop experiences, I've had a, a lot of experience with, you know, while I was at the University of Texas, even as a undergraduate, myself and Barry Kiddo applied for a number of grants where we did a lot of digital tools, including virtual labs. And we were very proud of our work. And, you know, we kind of programmed chemistry on the back ends of these systems. And it was very cool to figure out. And we were so proud of ourselves. But what we found is that the students just didn't like them. And, and I don't think that was local to just our efforts. Your students who are less prepared, what they would find is if you made them too open-ended, they would get lost and very frustrated and then start to hate chemistry. And that's not what we want. We want to kind of encourage uh, them to consider a STEM degree because it has a significant impact on their future earning power and really their job readiness for the jobs of the future. But then if you try to make them too prescriptive, and there are a lot of platforms out there like this, where you're like, you know, add this to this, do this, do this. Then a lot of the students come to you and say, you know, if a monkey could read, they could do this. I'm not learning anything. And you think you're giving me this tactile experience, but you're not. I already know how to use a mouse. I mean, <laughs> students would really say that to me. And so they would think you're wasting their time because it would still take them, a, you know, an hour and a half to get through a virtual experiment. But they're just dragging a mouse across the stage over and over and over. And I don't think anyone has solved that. Uh, no, I don't think so. And, and but again, I think it's solvable, perhaps. Yeah. I do think sometimes it's flavored by our belief in, in the necessity of hands-on learning, but neither here nor there. That's yes. you know, maybe my feeling as a 20-year chemistry educator. <laughs> so I'm actually, you know, one of my professional hobbies is, and this is stuff we're working on in the very early stages at LabFlow, is I'm a big fan of combining maybe online digital learning experiences for lab with, if you have to deliver labs outside of the traditional lab environment with kind of, you know, call it at home or kitchen chemistry. Ooh, okay. There's a lot of people interested in that. Absolutely. And it's been a hobby of mine for probably 10 years. And uh, as my kids were growing up, I used to do a lot of kitchen chemistry experiments with them, which were really fun. Obviously, they have to have a lot more rigor uh, for college students. And that's where the challenge uh, happens. You haven't been selling this yet. No, no, no. I'm just starting to work with some people like uh, Mike Kenny at uh, Tri-C's uh, Community College and a few others and bringing them together to come up uh, with some really interesting and novel approaches. I'm also working with, at the early phases of working with someone who's developed uh, lab data acquisition hardware that comes in the form of a very inexpensive Arduino. Uh, oh, neat probe capable thing that we're looking at maybe uh, in engaging with them to provide a solution that gives students really a lot of data collection power that would go with kitchen chemistry type experiments. But I've kind of set some metrics that the solution has to be less than $100 all in per student. You know, some of these lab kits get very expensive. Well, and I always worry about safety, yeah. even with kitchen chemistry. Yes. So you know, we're looking at, you know, uh, you know, we've set some very high bars for some metrics such as, you know, everything could be bought at the grocery store and is and could easily be eaten or drank. You know, mm -hmm. disposal is not an issue. The safety of disposal. These are some things uh, we're interested in promoting. And I think as the market, you know. Sorry, that's my dog. That's all right. In, in, podcast in the time of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I have a COVID puppy that's uh, seven weeks old uh, in the next room. But I think that for people looking to deliver online learning experiences, really we're talking about at-home learning experiences. They can't come to lab. And I think these will be very useful. And so we're looking to deliver these for the spring. Um, oh, that's interesting. You have background in epidemiology. I, I, are you going to be a soothsayer? Are we going to be back to quote unquote normal by the spring? 
sharing. Where do you see this going, especially for lab learning? Like I talked to a professor yesterday and they are just running more labs with fewer people, socially distanced and cleaning everything in between and then cutting down on the number of labs. So that was their plan. And they start class August 24th. So yeah, all of my uh, research background is in uh, virology, and I used to do uh, vaccine design and immunotherapies for HIV and hepatitis C. And so I'm not an epidemiologist, but it's a hobby of mine. And but I do know how how powerful viruses are and how hard it is to develop a vaccine for them. And you know, you said you know when are we going to be back or back to normal? And those are two different things, actually, because we're certainly not back to normal. But there are a lot of universities who are trying to be back. I do think that as we get closer and closer to the fall term, a lot of people are going to change their minds. And there are going to be a lot of events that happen over the course of the term that switch people back to online again. You just, 18, 19-year-old freshmen and sophomore, they just uh, cannot keep away from each other. And there's a lot of psychological uh, reasons for that. And you have Um, an 18-year-old, don't 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 you? (laughs) Oh, yes. I've got both a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old. And they really don't have their executive function fully developed in their brains at that age either. So it's really a challenge. I can make a prediction because a lot depends on what happens in the fall and what happens and whether people get serious about this pandemic and really shut things down. I do think that spring is likely going to still be hybrid and you're still going to be doing online and and partially offline. And I think I came across someone uh, at the University of South Alabama who had a really good approach to this and I would encourage anyone to consider it. And when he was talking to me, he said, look, most people, lab coordinators think in terms of experiments and weeks. And so what everyone is trying to do, all of his colleagues is trying to say, okay, well, we used to do 14 experiments, so we're going to do seven online and seven in the lab. And But what that forces you to do is it does double up effectively your lab space. So you can reduce 24 students in a lab space down to 12, but that's still not optimal. And what he did is he actually took a more uh, learning objectives uh, centered approach and deconstructed his course into what he was trying to teach and what the and what the importance of the lab was and he started focusing on techniques and kind of problem solving and other things and so what he's ra- rather doing is, is br- breaking down his students so they only have to come in one or two times during the entire semester and they just run through a series of techniques they're not doing entire experiments but because they're just running through a series of techniques with the guidance of you know, a TA or, or an instructor in the lab, the students can get through these and learn all the techniques that they would normally do multiple times over the course of a semester. But what he, in fact, is able to do is bring down the number of people into that room from 12 down to three. Ah, um, and so and, it's almost like a badging activity when, they, when they're proficient right. at this task. And a, and a lot of the graded work is more the pre-lab activities, the turning in of online you know, lab reports for online uh, provisional data that we're delivering through LabFlow. But basically, it's almost like a certification that, yes, you do know how to do these techniques, and we're there to help you learn. And I think this is the most pragmatic, sensible, and to be honest, best approach for hybrid labs. Uh, but I've talked to, you know, at this point, hundreds of faculty over the last three months, and he's the only one that's taken this approach. But maybe more yeah. after this podcast. You never know. That's right. I encourage everyone uh, to think of in these terms, because you could run through a series of probably over a two and a half hour lab period, you know, eight techniques, you know, where the, instead of, you know, doing a complete Beer's Law lab report using a spectrophotometer, just show that they can take two readings at different, you know, at, at different uh, wavelengths. And that's it. And then they move on. They know how to use the equipment. They know how to take a reading. 
And then the more of the online curriculum can really build that up into a Beer's Law lab uh, with simulated data and a lab report more, more traditional. I've seen some people show videos and have students decide whether, you know, whether techniques are right or wrong, you know, that kind of thing. So different ways of, you know, getting students to, even if they can't use their hands, to analyze how people are using their hands. Do you have badging in your LabFlow platform or anything like that? Because I've seen some papers not, not on that. Yet. Um, and it's something that we've always looked at. It was something I was a fan of it at Sapling. We never really implemented anything like that. But I do think badging is really important because if you, you know, we, we touched on this earlier. Students, you know, everyone is convinced that all their students are cheating. And when we look at our data at Sapling and at Catalyst, what we find is that no, students aren't, most students aren't cheating, that there are a few bad eggs that make it seem like, you know, they're posting their lab reports and copying things in Chegg, and it's just a, a few. But it is a problem, and it's probably top of mind for a lot of lab coordinators. Absolutely. Lab, lab courses uh, are, are uh, that way that, you know, uh, students feel a tremendous need to cheat or feel like they can get away with it. And I think part of it is, you know, badging is really great, but I think in general, one of the reasons that badging is great because it lowers the stakes of, of any activity. So it's not necessarily a grade, it's more like a competency achievement. And you could do and it again if you don't pass. Right. You get feedback and try again. That's right. And you can try multiple times to get their calculations right based upon the data they were given or that they input into the system because they were there in person to collect it and give them coaching and feedback. When students get feedback in real time, it lowers the stakes of any activity such that they really don't feel the need to cheat because they can try multiple times and with a little bit of grit and stick-to-itiveness, um, they can earn almost the same amount of points, you know, maybe with a, you know, slight deductions, but but they can get the grade that they feel like they need through a little bit of effort. And at the end, you know, learning is mostly about time on task. I don't care what anyone says. It's, you know, and we've, you know, we showed this at Sapling that students, when they're given multiple attempts to get a question right with some coaching and feedback, students feel like they're not taking more time on their homework. But in fact, they're doing far more problems that they would have normally if it were pencil and paper homework because they're attempting the same problem over and over again. Um, and in some cases with tutorial approaches, we gave them new numbers and they had to prove that they could do it. And so the same thing is true for labs. And if you allow people to have multiple attempts and lower the stakes, then they're much less inclined to cheat because they view it as an instructional activity as opposed to an assessment and a high stakes assessment. You know, and I think that's the key to sort of changing the paradigm instead of, they think of assessment as like the be all and end all. If assessment is part of instruction, then all of a sudden it changes the whole flavor of what they have to do and hopefully cut out that need to cheat or that That's feeling true. that they have to cheat. We could go on and on yes, about this. Yeah, but lowering <laughs> mistakes is good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, assessment is very important, but yes, those are absolutely. But I don't think lab reports and homework assignments should be assessments. Uh, they should be instructional learning activities that, are, that have points that motivate students to get them done and try hard. And that's what real-time feedback and multiple attempts does. 
is it has students they can earn points through grit and keeping being at it. And so I think lowering the stakes is very important as well as, you know, badging also lowers the stakes because it's not a grade necessarily, it's more competency based. And so, you know, lab reports typically, you know, students turning in, let's say 14 over the course of a term, once that leaves their hands and goes into the hands of a TA or an instructor that's going to grade them, it's very high stakes because they're just going to get back a score with no chance to remedy the situation. And so a LabFlow's platform allows them to be corrected by a computer that computers aren't judgmental. They don't <laughs> hold a grudge. They don't, they don't, they aren't, they aren't going to write the student's next uh, letter of recommendation for grad school or anything like that. So they, they don't feel, they feel like, you know, very at home making multiple attempts. And then by the time the lab report gets to someone who has to hand grade certain elements of the lab report, the beauty is that they feel a lot more confident about that lab report they've turned in. Even if they had to make multiple attempts to get their calculations right, they at least are proud of the lab report that they're turning in. And that's very important, how a student feels about the work they're doing in class. We are both on the same page. It is all about building products to help students learn and instructors teach. And building a workforce that's, you know, I think you said it at one time, like science curious and science literate. There are two different, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm misquoting you, but I'll let you say it. Like what's the mission of what <laughs> well, I, we do as product developers? I mean, for lab courses, you know, you, you have certain goals. You know, one of the goals is to develop students a love for science. And, you know, that's where I fell in love with science is that you know, you could run experiments and find things out about the world around you that you didn't know and, and watch it happen. Or you could make something, you know, a lot of people that go into organic are tremendous builders. They want to construct things and build something and say, I did this. I, I invented something that is, doesn't exist out there, you know. And so you, you learn these tremendous tools to do this. And that, that really inspires a love for learning but then there are certain students who you just want them to be familiar with science and appreciate the scientific method, appreciate the work of scientists. And your real goal, you know, even if they go on to become, you know, accountants or whatever, they're still going to be science curious. And if you can develop a real appreciation for science and the wonders of it, um, you know, hopefully they go on to become a lawyer who still subscribes to Scientific American magazine or still reads science articles in their daily news stream. And that's the kind of stuff that I would say is a minimum aspiration for a lab course. Well, that's wonderful. I think we're going to end on that because it's aspirational. And in this time of pandemic, I think it's always good. I'm a, always a half full kind of lady. It's good to talk to you, Jamie. I wish you luck as you help all these instructors throughout the fall and into the spring with LabFlow. And I hope we can touch base later on in the fall, off and running toward the new normal, which might be a little different, but it could be even better. Who knows? So I, thanks I for that. In general, it will. And thank you very much, Julia. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I love what you guys are doing at Alchemy. And uh, I want to encourage you to keep going. Thanks a lot, Jamie. <laughs> thank great. you. It was great talking again. Bye. Bye-bye. We'd like to thank our listeners and guests for supporting and being a part of our podcast. Season two will start next week with an episode featuring Jenny Kong Meyer and how she uses Zoom to make her class more interactive. Join the discussion and follow us at Learn Alchemy on Instagram and Twitter. This podcast was created and published by Alchemy, edited by Liz Gross, produced by Tiffany Jones, and narrated by Jonna Manchester.